As the religious leaders felt the sting of the rebuke, this man simultaneously felt the grace of God pulsating through his body until his hand became fully functioning again. Matthew 12.13 says it was restored to normal, indicating there was no need for a later checkup, there was no rehab program, no medicine, no surgery. In fact, in other occasions, we've seen in Mark's Gospel, haven't we, that when Jesus heals people as a demonstration of compassion and sympathy, He touches them. He doesn't touch this man. Not because He doesn't have sympathy. Jesus doesn't even say a word. He just looks at the man and He is healed. You know why? Because Jesus is pressing home the point, you think that if I heal this man, I'm working on the Sabbath. I didn't even speak a word to him. I didn't even touch him. He was healed just when I looked at him. Are you going to call that work? This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. Johns County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than 3 miles from Interstate 95 and less than 2 miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Please remain standing and take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Our reading of Scripture this morning, as always, is our sermon text, Mark chapter 3. Allow me to read the first six verses and then we will be seated and pray. Mark writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately 
held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of our God. Please be seated as we bow. Father, it is with great seriousness that we read our text this morning. Because we find out for the first time in the Gospel of Mark the intentions of the religious leaders to murder our Lord. And yet, in all of this, we recognize your sovereignty in sending your Son to be the sacrifice for sinners. That this was your plan from the beginning. So Lord, we pray that as we study this passage, that we might examine our own hearts, that we might willingly see that apart from your sovereign work of regeneration, we are just like the Pharisees. We need a work of grace in our hearts that only you can do. We pray that You would help us to be thoughtful and mindful of these very serious matters. Remove from our minds the clutter of this world. And help us to see that we are standing on holy ground this morning. As Christ is placed before us in this account. We pray and we ask all of these things and for Your help we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps there is no better verse that encapsulates why the religious leaders and Jesus' various other enemies among politicians conspired to kill Him more than John chapter 5 and verse 18, which reads, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Such was exactly what Jesus did as we saw last Lord's Day. Jesus was accused of breaking the Sabbath for allowing his disciples to eat handfuls of grain on the Sabbath day. And not only that, but Jesus claimed deity in that account, didn't he, when he said that he was Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus, as we saw last time, was not really violating Scripture. He was not violating the law of God, but he was violating the traditions of the Pharisees. And Jesus, in that account, really set the record straight. He said that the Sabbath, verse 27, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had turned that axiom on its head. They were saying the exact opposite, weren't they? They were saying that man was made for the sake of the Sabbath. This, in effect, turned a day that God intended to be a blessing into a burden. It focused on rules instead of rest. It focused on work instead of worship. Because on that particular day of the week, the Jews had to labor more than any other day of the week to keep up with all the rules and regulations that were laid down by the tradition of the elders. Constantly monitoring their behavior and the behavior of their wives and their children and their livestock and their servants. But Jesus was clear 
that the Sabbath was made for man because the Sabbath was created after man was created. And therefore, that tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that God made the Sabbath as a blessing for man. Man was created first and then the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man's benefit. But the religious leaders, with all their rules and their regulations, call Sabbath observance to be the worship of a day rather, rather than the worship of deity. Such man-made traditions were really a powerful drink for Judaism. Under the influence of such stringent, extra-biblical requirements, not just attached to the Sabbath, but all the other traditions that they preached, the nation of Israel became drunk on legalism. In fact, Jesus would say in Matthew 15, 14, let the blind lead the blind because both will stumble and fall into a pit, just like spiritual drunkards. Earlier, when Jesus was asked why his disciples didn't fast like John's disciples, Jesus used an illustration. You remember that back in verse 22. Jesus says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Luke's account tells us that Jesus added to that little illustration or parable these words. Jesus said, And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says, This old is good enough. That was another way of saying that the Pharisees were good with their old wine of legalism. Their legalism made them drunk and their people drunk so that their spiritual sensibilities were numb. They were so obsessed and so controlled by what the tradition of the elders said that they didn't want to taste of the good wine of the gospel of God's grace that Jesus was offering. They drank their legalism. And bitter as it was, it didn't matter to them because they were after the effect of that spiritual alcohol. It propped up their status as spiritually superior in their society and in their religion. But Jesus is saying, you're nothing but religious drunkards. You long for the effect. You care not what tastes good. And you can't just add me to your legalism. Otherwise, it will burst your brittle legalistic wineskins. The Apostle John succinctly put it this way, Jesus came to His own and those who were His own did not receive Him. That was because the religious leaders led a whole nation to reject the Messiah. The very ones that He called to Himself to repentance were the very ones that they called and cried out to Pilate, crucify Him, which in fact Jesus was crucified. The gospel wine that Jesus offered burst their brittle wineskins of legalism and spilled on the ground along with their broken pride. But instead of being humbled and repenting, they were hardened in their hearts as we read in this passage. And Jesus was grieved at the hardness of their heart because the joy of the gospel did not flow through their spiritual veins. Such is evident in the fact that, for one, they were unsympathetic to the healing of the paralytic. We saw that back in chapter 2. Who has the authority to forgive sins but God? They didn't see Jesus as God. They were unsympathetic to the fact that Jesus healed that man. They were unsympathetic to the disciples' hunger. They wanted to criticize Jesus for allowing the disciples to pick heads of grain on the Sabbath. 
And as we will see this morning, they were unsympathetic to the man with the withered hand that Jesus was more than willing to heal, though it was on the Sabbath. And I just want to suggest before we move on that I think one of the clearest proofs of true Christianity is that of joy. The Pharisees did not have an ounce of joy. They are representative of a joyless person. And a joyless person may be religious, but a joyless person is not a Christian. The gospel transforms hearts of stone and bitterness into hearts of flesh. He makes us new wineskins. He fills us with the joy of the Holy Spirit. But as I said, the gospel wine that Jesus offered burst the religious leaders' brittle wineskins and spilled on the ground beneath them. They squandered the opportunity of grace that was offered to them. Their issue was external, wasn't it? They were clean on the outside, but they were broken on the inside. Their religious wineskins looked fine on the outside, maybe even looking new. But once the gospel began to ferment in their understanding of who Jesus was, that He was condemning them even in their righteousness, it burst their pride, it burst their legalism, and they revealed that they were dead. They needed heart surgery. They needed a work from the inside out, not the outside in. The outside in doesn't work. Good works do not save. Only new gospel wineskins would do. Jesus would say on another occasion in John chapter 5, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. Not only did they not run to Christ, they ran away from Christ, and they sought to crucify our Lord. And when we study the Pharisees, it is very tempting, isn't it, to ask the question, how dare them? How could they respond that way and act that way? But the reality is that unless Jesus buys new wineskins for us, buys free grace, the wine of the gospel will not fill us either. The religious leaders hated Jesus not because they denied His power to heal other people or His power to cast out demons or His ability to mesmerize the crowds with His teaching. They hated Jesus because He challenged their authority And dear friends, I want you to understand this morning, this is a very serious issue. If you do not come to Christ and you are not in Christ, you have no one to blame but yourself. Your issue is you want to control your own life. You want to be your own authority, your own boss, and your own king. You don't want to admit that you are hopeless and helpless even in your own unrighteousness, or even in your own righteousness, that the Bible says is as filthy as rags. If anyone could earn salvation, it would be the Pharisees. They would have been the first ones you would think that would enter the kingdom of God because of their external religiosity. But Jesus would say, in Matthew 5.20, the exact opposite. Jesus would say, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus meant by that statement, which was said in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, was that true righteousness begins on the inside with a heart change that is wrought by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Outward conformity to religious rituals and rules and even to the law of God itself can never, ever save. Paul said that if anyone could have been saved by putting confidence in the flesh, it would have been him. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to righteousness found in the law, I was blameless. 
But Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own which is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Not good works. But the religious leaders rejected that gospel grace, that gospel wine. Now as we approach our text this morning, we need to remember that this hatred of the Pharisees that we're going to see coming to a head has been building. The conspiracy against Jesus' life has been building in the gospel of Mark. Mark is good in drawing out the drama. And he has presented before us the fact that Jesus has a reputation of being a blasphemer. Chapter 2, verse 17, who has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has been accused of being a friend of sinners, which he was, but the implication of that accusation was that he participated in the sins of those sinners, which he didn't. Jesus had a reputation of being a religious rogue because he would not participate in the fasting disciplines of the religious elite. And as we saw last time, Jesus was accused of being a Sabbath breaker, though in reality he wasn't. Jesus had a bad reputation even early in his ministry because of the religious leaders. Last time he was accused, we saw, of Sabbath breaking. And as I said, he declared at the end of chapter 2 that he was Lord even of the Sabbath because out of all the laws of God, the, the ten commandments, and then all the laws that the religious leaders made up that surrounded the law of God, it was Sabbath observance which served as their religious perch of superiority, that is for the religious establishment. Scribes and Pharisees used this day as a day to show how spiritual they were above everyone else and how unspiritual everyone else was. The Sabbath was a stage for religious acting, and in effect, what Jesus did is he walked up onto the stage without a script and he ripped off the masks of their hypocrisy. He exposed them. And he did it last time by using an illustration from the life of David, where David went into the tabernacle at Nob and he ate the holy bread that was meant for the holy priests that was located on the holy table in the holy place. And Jesus says, in effect, if David can break a ceremonial law in the Old Testament that was established by God, then if I want to allow my disciples to break your man-made traditions on what can and cannot be done on the Sabbath, I will let them do that. I am the King of kings. I am the greater David. The point of the law is to love God and to love your neighbor. That priest in the Old Testament, by feeding that holy bread to David, was not violating the law of God, even though the ceremonial law said the bread was only for the priests. In fact, he would have been violating God's law if he didn't feed David and his companions, because if he would have not fed David and his companions, he would not have been loving his neighbor as himself. And in the same vein, the greater David, that is Jesus Christ, would not have been loving his disciples had he not allowed them to eat grain on a very busy day of ministry on the Sabbath. The point of the law is to love one's neighbor as oneself. The only ones not loving God and loving others were the Pharisees. And Jesus exposes them for this. As we move to this next account, he exposes them again for their cold and heartless, unloving, legalistic spirits, this time regarding their attitude toward a man with a withered hand that has an encounter 
with Jesus in the synagogue. In these verses, just six verses, we really see behind the conspiracy that led to Jesus' murder. This is a study, as we look at these verses, in the effects of legalism, which is always rooted in bitterness. It's always rooted in hatred and ultimately the rejection of Christ. This is a passage in which we would do well to examine our own hearts to ensure that we are looking to Christ, not our own good works. We are looking to the Lord of the Sabbath. We are looking to the King of Kings. We are looking to the One who sacrificed His life for sinners, not our own righteousness, not our own good works, not our own religiosity. That sort of life that focuses on the power of man for salvation is one that will end in destruction and condemnation. That is the mentality of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. This account opens to us in three riveting scenes. First we see the conspiracy against Jesus continued. Then we see the conspiracy against Jesus confronted. And finally, the conspiracy against Jesus collaborated. Notice with me, first of all, where Mark begins, the conspiracy against Jesus continued. Verses 1 and 2, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The conspiracy is continuing. Verse 1 says, again, he entered the synagogue and there was a man there with a withered hand. Now, we don't know for sure, but I think it's safe to assume, more than safe to assume, that Jesus is still in Capernaum. And after leaving the the grain fields with the disciples, he walks into the doors of the synagogue. The controversy in the cornfield leads to a struggle in the synagogue. This is the same day that the Pharisees accused Jesus and the disciples of violating the Sabbath. They followed Jesus and the disciples to the grain field, and now they're following them into the synagogue. Matthew 12, 9 lends support to this. Matthew's account says, He went out from there, that is from the grain fields, and entered the synagogue. And the Pharisees were following. Verse 3 will point, or verse 2 will point that out, but verse 1 says here, There was a man there with a withered hand. Luke is a little bit more descriptive. He says in his account that it was his right hand that was withered. That would have been his dominant hand. Luke was a doctor, and so he's paying more attention to the physical details of what is going on here. This man was debilitated. One apocryphal tradition says that he was a stonemason that actually entered the synagogue and pleaded with Jesus to heal him so that he wouldn't have to resort to begging for the rest of his life. We don't know if that tradition is true or not, but we know that because it was his right hand, this man was out of work and there were not any disability checks in this society. So this was a desperate situation. The word for withered is the same word used in Mark 11 to speak about the fig tree that was dried up. It's also the same word that is used to describe the man who was stiffened in his body by a demon. The point is, the man once had a functional hand, now it was not functional. As we're going to see, the Pharisees could care less about that, and maybe even you would be somewhat unsympathetic because at least he had one hand that worked, but as we're going to see here, Jesus was thoroughly filled with compassion. Jesus enters that synagogue, and he did there what he did on any occasion he entered a synagogue. If he was there, 
Uh, when his ministry started, he would have been preaching. He would have been teaching. Luke 6, 6 tells us that he was teaching. He was the guest speaker for the Capernaum synagogue on this particular Sabbath. He was a regular guest speaker. We saw that back in Mark chapter 1. We saw also in Mark chapter 1 that he went through all of Galilee entering the synagogues to preach. He had a very, a very heavy schedule of preaching. And no doubt on this occasion, the crowds were gathered and they were ready to hear a great sermon. They were mesmerized by his preaching because he taught with authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. And that would have just added to the tension because it would have contributed to the jealousy they already had that Jesus was becoming famous. Luke 19.48 says that when Jesus preached, all the people were hanging on his words. And that was what was happening on this occasion. But like we saw earlier, there was a man with a demon who interrupted the service. This service would be interrupted, but it would be interrupted not by a demon, not by Satan, but by God Himself. Jesus, and here's an interesting point of notation, would interrupt His own sermon to teach a lesson to the Pharisees. Back in chapter 1, it was a demon that interrupted his sermon. Here, Jesus interrupts his own sermon. And verse 2 makes it really interesting because it tells us that the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal this man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. Why? So that they might accuse him. Now, Mark doesn't say until verse 6 that it was the Pharisees. But Luke tells us in Luke 6, 7 that the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would perform this healing so that they might have reason to accuse him. As I said, they were always dogging his steps constantly. We read in Luke chapter 14 that one Sabbath he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees and they were watching him carefully. Constantly watching his actions, constantly trying to find some area in his life of sin or some questionable thing that they could accuse him of. They could never find anything. It was always trumped up charges, but they were intent on looking for something. In fact, a real, real incriminating verse in Luke 20, verse 20, it says they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Hateful. And apparently the Pharisees had followed Jesus from the cornfields into the synagogue. That's what's happening here. The conspiracy is continuing. And Jesus would purposely interrupt his service to teach them a lesson. Jesus knew the religious leaders were hoping that he would heal this man so that they could accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. Why did Jesus know that? Well, he knew the tradition of the elders taught that Sabbath rules could only be broken if somebody's life was in danger. This man's life was not in danger. Maybe his livelihood, but not his life. So for Jesus to heal this man or perform some sort of medicinal supernatural wonder would be in the religious leader's eyes a violation of the Sabbath. Jesus knew what they were doing. Jesus knew they were setting him up. And I should probably point out at this time that there were two schools of thought between the different disciples of the religious leaders. The school of Shammai had a very strict interpretation of the Sabbath. The school of Hillel, more lenient. In the area of Galilee, it was really the lenient school of Hillel 
that uh, would have been the mindset of the people. They would have been sympathetic to a healing on a Sabbath. But the religious leaders were from Jerusalem. They were more of the school of Shammai, where there was strict observance of the Sabbath that followed the tradition of the elders down to the very last detail. And I think understanding this context helps us to see that the presence of this man presented Jesus with a challenge that everyone there would have been aware of what was taking place. This was a showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus had the power to heal. He had proven that. But would He choose to heal this man or not? The religious leaders waited with bated breath, ready to point their fingers at Jesus. And they would argue that since this man's life was not in danger, Jesus could wait and heal him tomorrow. That's what they would have argued. In fact, turn with me over to Luke chapter 13 and I'll show you a verse I discovered that sort of lends support to this. There was a woman that needed healing here in Luke chapter 13. And verse 10 says Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So same sort of situation. It was the Sabbath. Jesus is teaching. And verse 13 says He laid His hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. She had some sort of disabling spirit. But verse 14 says, The ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on, these, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. That would have been the mentality of the religious leaders this day. There's six other days of the week. You can heal this guy. He has one good hand. I think he can wait till tomorrow. Completely unsympathetic to the needs of this man. Now, aside from the legalism of such thinking and the obvious lack of compassion, there's another more astonishing fact, and that is the religious leaders don't deny Jesus' healing powers. But they're so blind by their legalism, they can't see God right in front of them poised to perform a miracle. This same God had the power to heal this man, and they had seen Jesus heal many people before. Jesus had the power to change their hearts too if they would repent, but they wouldn't repent. And that's why Jesus said He was the great physician. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. They couldn't be healed of their legalism because they didn't want to be healed of their legalism. Jesus had the power to do it. They wouldn't repent. Matthew adds to his account in Matthew chapter 12 of the incident we looked at last week where Jesus allowed the disciples to eat grain and the Pharisees accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. Jesus says, if you had known what this means, and he quotes from Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Referring to himself. In other words, I'm innocent of violating the Sabbath. And I'm allowing the disciples to eat the grain because I'm being merciful. No mercy from the Pharisees. No repentance from the Pharisees. Regardless of how obvious His power was to heal and His power to forgive, they weren't going to come to Jesus for forgiveness, the Pharisees, and they didn't want Him performing as the great physician a healing on this man, something that could wait until the next day. According to their laws, one could administer first aid to prevent an injury or a condition from getting worse. Let me give you a modern day analogy. On the Sabbath, you could give someone a band-aid, but you could not... So stitches. 
into their body. Pursuing a cure must wait until the Sabbath was over. A withering hand? It's not life-threatening. The tradition of the elders said you can't even set a dislocated hand on the Sabbath. Deal with it until Sunday. It's interesting that Luke 6.8 points out Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew the hatred in their heart, didn't He? He knew they were challenging His authority. And I think it's at this point that Jesus changed the message that He had went to the synagogue to preach. And He said, you know what? I'm going to teach these guys a lesson. And I'm going to use a visual aid in my sermon with this man with the withered hand. And before we move on to point number two, I just want to stop and say, Jesus knew what they were thinking. And Jesus knows what you are thinking today. He knows your heart. He knows your heart. He can see your heart. He knows whether you're religious or whether you're a true believer. He knows if you are trying to externally earn favor with God, earn favor with others. He knows why you're here this morning. He knows whether or not you've been changed inwardly. You don't need a little bit of Jesus to fill some legalistic wineskin, otherwise it will burst. You need a new heart and a new wineskin if you don't have one. You need the Holy Spirit to make you a new creation. And I would urge you even this moment to pray that He would do that for you if you know that you are a religious Pharisee. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't run away. Don't turn your back on Jesus Look to Him. Repent. Because any sinner that refuses to come to Christ because they think they're good enough is in the same category as the Pharisees. That will leave you condemned in your sin. Jesus knows your heart. But we're considering the reasons behind this conspiracy to get rid of Jesus, aren't we? By the religious leaders. They didn't want their authority challenged, so they tried to trap Jesus And we move from verses 1 and 2, first riveting scene here, the conspiracy against Jesus continued. Now, in verses 3 through 5, the conspiracy against Jesus confronted. So the conspiracy began in the grain fields, continued as he walked through the doors of the synagogue with the Pharisees in tow. The conspiracy against Jesus continued. Now, the conspiracy against Jesus confronted in verses 3 through 5. Notice your Bibles. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. As I said, since Jesus knew their thinking, Jesus at this point changed the sermon he was going to preach, And he decided to use this man as a visual aid and to teach the religious leaders a lesson. He would heal this man and show compassion on the one hand, and on the other hand, he would rebuke and condemn the Pharisees for their deadness, for their religious hypocrisy. And this is dramatic. The actions of Jesus in verses 3 through 5 in confronting the religious leaders was absolutely dramatic. Everyone there that day 
would not have forgotten this event. Because Jesus confronts them on their own turf in the synagogue with a watching crowd. He uses a man to teach them a lesson, a man that they were using as a pawn that they didn't care about. I believe it's quite possible they had set this man up to go to the synagogue so that Jesus would heal him so that they could accuse this man. They didn't care about this man. They used him negatively. Jesus would use him positively and he would teach the religious leaders a lesson along the way. Three actions of Jesus that are dramatic in this confrontation. Notice, first of all, verse 3. We see a dramatic command. A dramatic command. Verse 3 tells us, And he, that is Jesus, said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. Come here. That would have been just a little bit intimidating, I think. Considering the fact that Jesus is there teaching in the middle of a sermon and He calls this man forward who did not, I'm sure, want to be paraded around with his atrophied hand that was stiff and all withered up. Secret sinister plotting has no place in the synagogue, has no place in the church. Jesus would be transparent. You want to have a confrontation. Let's have it right here and right now. Bring the man forward. Jesus was not only Lord of the Sabbath, generally speaking, but He would be the Lord of the Sabbath on this day. He declared His authority in the last account. In this account, He would demonstrate His authority and His power by healing this man and showing His authority over the tradition of the elders as well at the same time. So He says to the man, come here. Now the text doesn't mention it, but it's obvious the man had faith. Right? He would have had to swallow his pride to come forward. He was desperate to come forward. He also would have to believe that Jesus would have the power to heal him. He knew why Jesus was calling him forward. He had faith. I remember sitting in church as a little boy about the age of nine or ten listening to a sermon when all at once the preacher's eyes searched the congregation and he said, Andrew, I want you to come forward. Well, I didn't have anything better to do, so I got up and walked down the center aisle and he met me at the front and picked me up, put me on the Lord's Supper table. I'll never forget it, right there in front of the pulpit. I'm standing on the Lord's Supper table looking at the congregation. His point was some illustration about how tall Goliath was and how much faith it would be required of David to fight Goliath. And so standing on that table, I guess I was eight or nine feet tall, and he thought that would be a good illustration. That was a little bit intimidating, and it certainly took a step of faith, no pun intended, to walk out in front of the whole church, and I never forgot that occasion. I also never forgot another occasion a few years later when the same preacher called my brother to come forward in the middle of a sermon, put him on the Lord's Supper table, and in an effort to demonstrate and illustrate what faith is, he told my brother to jump into his arms if my brother believed that he could catch him, because faith is only as good as the object in which you place it. Very simple illustration. I can promise you that neither myself nor my brother have forgotten those events. It's in the middle of a sermon the middle of worship, the middle of instruction. 
kind of awkward and bizarre. You're going to call a man forward? A dramatic command. Dramatic command. The Bible says in Acts 17 that God commands all men everywhere to repent. I believe that this man not only had faith when he came forward, but I believe he had a repentant heart. He trusted that Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath. He knew Jesus could heal his hand, but he was drawn to Jesus for spiritual reasons as well. But notice, secondly, there's a dramatic cross-examination. Not only a dramatic command, verse 3, but now a dramatic cross-examination. The man comes forward, but now we read in verse 4, Jesus said to them, he looks out to the congregation, and he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Everyone knew what was going on here. This was a challenge. Would Jesus heal this guy or not? Jesus cross-examines, playing the part of a lawyer, these religious leaders. Mark is notoriously brief because Mark just wants to get to the point. But if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, turn back, there's a little bit of color added to what happened. There's actually more than what Mark mentions. Matthew chapter 12. Pick up in verse 9. He went on from there, that is, from the grain fields, and entered their synagogue. Verse 10, a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So Matthew says that they, that is the Pharisees, asked Jesus first, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That sort of puts things in perspective. They're challenging Jesus. And they did that, verse 10 says, so that they might accuse him. Verse 11, he said to them, which one of you... Who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, Jesus says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That really puts things in perspective and gives a fuller understanding of what's going on here. Our Lord is responding to their questions that they are raising. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And He responds, as Matthew says here, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? Before asking that question, Jesus asks, is it permissible in their minds to help a little sheep on the Sabbath to get out of a pit? His point is, if it's not wrong to do that, then is it wrong to help a human being created in the image of God? You want to ask... Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? But I want to ask you, if it's permissible to take a little sheep out of a pit, then don't you think it's a good thing to heal someone who's been created in the image of God? They're challenging Him and He's confronting them. He is showing their inconsistency because, according to their tradition, treating animals was more important Treating animals good was more important than treating humans good. Sort of a lesson in our animal-loving culture, isn't it? All sorts of people seem to have more compassion for orphaned dogs and cats. In fact, our culture says, kill the babies but save the whales. Probably didn't know that was a talking point for the religious leaders. No sympathy, no compassion, no care for human beings. Twisted, perverted, evil. But since they 
were the supposed experts of the law, Jesus turns the question they asked. Remember, they asked, Matthew 12, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus asked that question back to them after giving the illustration of the little sheep in the pit, but He, he tweaks it. Notice verse 4 of Mark chapter 3. Jesus tweaks it a bit and He says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Obviously, a child could answer this question, but what Jesus is really asking is, are you telling me, are you telling me that it's okay to do good six days of the week, but not the seventh day of the week? You would lift a, a little sheep out of a pit, but here's a man with a withered hand who's lost everything that he has because he can't work, and you don't want anything done to him? Let me just mention this. This is a serious point. Jesus gave rules for his kingdom. Here's one of them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. In other words, even rank-and-file normal sinners have compassion on other people. Not the religious leaders. More compassion on an animal. shouldn't matter what day of the week it is. In fact, Peter says this, 1 Peter 2.14. That Christians, by doing right, or we could say doing good, silence the ignorance of foolish men. You know what that means? That's in the context of honoring civil magistrates. And what Peter is saying there is that when Christians, when Christians do right, when they do good, they silence the ignorance of foolish men that may want bad things to happen to Christians. Because even wicked people see... Christians actually do good for society. Maybe we should back off a little bit. Historically, that's true. Biblically, that is true. Even godless civil magistrates who rule with tyranny can look at Christians and be silenced because of the good that they do. Here's another verse found in 3 John. The Apostle John says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. The one who does good is of God. Jesus is standing right in front of them, but the religious leaders couldn't see God. They were evil. They didn't know how to do good to anybody. Their goodness was external. It wasn't internal. No sympathy for this man In fact, as I said, it's possible that they convinced this man to go to the synagogue to seek a healing from Jesus so that they could trap Jesus and accuse Jesus of doing what was unlawful because they would have seen that healing this man was not doing good, even though it was. So Jesus says, you want to ask me, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? And I want to ask you, is it right to take a little sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath? If it is, then... Is it lawful for me to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And notice the end of verse 4. It says, but they were silent. That means they were unable to answer the question because if they denied it was right to do good on the Sabbath, they would have looked like fools. They would have looked like fools. Jesus knew the law was designed to do good to others, to love others one's neighbor as oneself. To do the right thing on this Sabbath would be to heal this man. That was the compassionate thing to do. Now turn back with me to the prophet Isaiah just for a moment. Isaiah chapter 1. 
because they thought they were experts in the law, the Pharisees did, but they didn't understand the law and they didn't understand the Old Testament. God was clear to the nation of Israel in Isaiah chapter 1 that He desired sacrificial lives over the rote ritualism of sacrifices at the altar. It always comes back to our heart. Where is our heart? Isaiah 1, verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Wow. He's not, he's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to Israel. Verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I'm not impressed. I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I don't care what you do on the outside and observing the Sabbath. It means nothing to me. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I won't listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do what? Good! Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. That's a heart of compassion, isn't it? That's a heart of love. That's what it means to do good. Oh, but we offer all these sacrifices and incense and observe the Sabbath. God says, so what? Stop doing that. You need a heart change. You violated the whole spirit of the law, which is to do good and have compassion and to love others and to seek justice and to defend the defenseless. Notice what he says in verse 18. Come. Now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I promise to wash your sins away and to forgive you. But don't come parading around in religious garb because I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your Sabbath observance. That's what God told Israel. That's basically what Jesus is saying here in this account. He's confronting them. You're asking me what's lawful to do on the Sabbath and what is good to do on the Sabbath? You don't know your Bible. Isaiah 58 says we're to delight in the Sabbath. We are to be marked by deeds of love and deeds of mercy. The Pharisees delighted in external sacrifices to God, but not sacrificial service to others. That's the point to see. The Pharisees were like those who obey... I've got to be careful here. Pharisees were like those who obey the speed limit out of habit and in order to fulfill a civic obligation. And maybe even the pride of saying, I never speed. Well, that's a lot different than one who obeys the spirit of the law and says, it's my civic duty to obey the law, to obey the speed limit. But it's not only my duty, it's what I delight in because I don't want to kill 
someone else. That's honoring the spirit of the law, isn't it? Loving your neighbor as yourself. This response reflects the attitude of one who values life, the former one who doesn't even consider others in the equation. That was the Pharisees. It was all about their own rule following. They didn't care about others. Consumed with the external, not the internal. Motivated in their obedience. Not by love for others, but a love for themselves. And so Jesus' cross-examination of the Pharisees should have caused them to examine their hearts, but it really didn't. It should cause us to examine our hearts, though, shouldn't it? What motivates our obedience? What motivates your obedience? Is it love for God? Is it love for others? Are you more concerned with your religious reputation? Are you moved in your obedience out of conviction of what the Scriptures say or out of an outward litmus test of what others will think of you and your standing religiously? There's a world of difference between obedience that loves God and loves neighbor and obedience that just does it for the external and for the status quo. But Jesus isn't finished. These religious leaders came to confront him. He's escalating the conflict. He's escalating the confrontation. First with a dramatic command, verse 3. Second with a dramatic cross-examination, verse 4. Finally with a dramatic cure, verse 5. It says, and he looked around at them with anger. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. I challenge you to find a more sobering statement than that in the Bible. He looked around at them with anger. Orges is the Greek word. That word for anger is used in Scripture to describe the wrath of God. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Same word. Jesus is looking out with eyes of wrath, orgase, anger. Same word that is used to describe how Jesus felt when Mark says in Mark chapter 10 that Jesus was indignant, same word, orgase, he was indignant at the disciples who tried to stop the little children from coming to him. It's a strong word. And his anger, as righteous as it was, notice was also coupled with sadness because verse 5 says, not only did he look around at them with anger, but he was also grieved at their hardness of heart. You can't see it in the English, but if you study the Greek, you'll see that the tenses of this indicate that the anger, the gaze of his anger was momentary, but the grief of the hardness of their heart was continual, was perpetual. A moment of anger, a moment of wrath. This is dramatic. I mean, can you imagine the moment before healing this man when Jesus stares off and looks around with piercing eyes of wrath? Sort of like the time he was interrupted in another sermon by his own family. We'll come across this. Same Greek wording is used. His family interrupts them. Someone says, look, your family's looking for you. Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? And Mark says, he looked around those who were sitting around him same word, looked around, 
dramatic, intense gaze. And he said, Behold, you are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, my mother. Now, the time that woman touched the hem of his garment, we read in Mark chapter 5, immediately Jesus perceiving in himself that power left him, he turned, a cra- turned around and looked at the crowd. It's the same dramatic gaze of Jesus that leaves everything hanging in suspense. Dramatic moment. Here was the showdown. Filled with anger in Jesus' heart, filled with grief over the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees, and everyone's watching, what would Jesus do? Is He truly Lord of the Sabbath? Would He heal or would He cave to the religious establishment? I want to leave you in suspense for just one more minute to make this point. There is a such thing as righteous anger. But can I be so bold as to say that you don't know when you're expressing it and when you're not? Don't use the example of Jesus to justify sinful anger. It's Calvin who said, it's all but impossible for sinners. In his commentary on Mark, it's all but impossible for sinners, even Christians, with a new heart and new desires, to have purely righteous anger without there being some admixture of sin. I think Calvin understood that because he understood depravity. But for Jesus' part, here is the perfect, holy, harmless, undefiled Son of God. He can with one gaze have righteous anger and another gaze be saddened in his heart over the hardness of the hearts of sinners. Jesus gave that parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember it. Priest passed by. Didn't help that poor fellow stripped of everything that he had, beaten, lying in a pool of blood, half dead. That was the religious leaders. They didn't care about this man with a withered hand. Jesus, he's the good Samaritan of that parable. He he is the one that rescues us out of the pool of our misery. Beat up by legalism, beat up by the law of God, beat up by the mentality of works-oriented salvation. Religion has no compassion. Religion doesn't love others. Jesus not only had compassion for this man with a withered hand, Jesus had sadness that the hardness of the religious leaders' hearts couldn't see past their own legalism to want this guy to get help. By the way, when Jesus gave that parable, let me just remind you, that when Jesus gave that parable of the Good Samaritan. He was very clear what it meant to obey God's law. Just listen. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And then Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Before Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, he sets up the whole scene by causing this lawyer to give the answer Jesus wanted him to give, and that was a summary of the law of God. And then Jesus gives that parable. True obedience to God has compassion and mercy. Jesus not only had compassion for the bad hand, but also he had sadness in his heart over the bad hearts of the Pharisees. They couldn't love this man, but Jesus would. Notice the end of verse 5. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And Mark says his hand was restored. I love this. As the religious leaders felt the sting of the rebuke, this man simultaneously felt the grace of God pulsating through his body until his hand became fully functioning again. Matthew 12, 13 says it was restored to normal, indicating there was no need for a later checkup, there was no rehab program, no medicine, no surgery. In fact, in other occasions, we've seen in Mark's Gospel, haven't we, that when Jesus heals people as a demonstration of compassion and sympathy, he touches them? He doesn't touch this man. Not because he doesn't have sympathy. Jesus didn't even say a word. He just looks at the man and he is healed. You know why? Because Jesus is pressing home the point, you think that if I heal this man, I'm working on the Sabbath. I didn't even speak a word to him. I didn't even touch him. He was healed just when I looked at him. Are you going to call that work? He left the religious leaders completely and totally silenced. Jesus didn't need to touch to heal. Jesus didn't need to speak a word to heal. He did those things to connect with the people that he healed and touched. But on this occasion, this man knew where Jesus was coming from. He marched forward in the synagogue. He knew Jesus loved him. He didn't need a word of reassurance. He just needed Jesus to look at him, and the man was healed. Miraculously. This was a big blow to the religious establishment. A big blow. There's something more here. Go back up to verse 4. Jesus said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Stop right there for a minute. That's the first question Jesus asks. That refers to whether the religious leaders think Jesus should heal this man and thereby do good to him or leave him alone, which in effect would mean to do him harm. As I said, that left them speechless because... How could they say it would be better to harm this man than to do him good? That's the first part of the question. But notice, the second part of the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill? Now this does not refer to the man. This refers to Jesus. Jesus, in effect, is saying, is it better for me to do good to this man and heal him, or would you rather me just leave him alone, even though I have the power to heal him and therefore do him harm? And by the way, while we're on that subject, let me ask you another question. Is it lawful to save a life on a Sabbath? Is it lawful to kill somebody on the Sabbath? What is he talking about? He knew their hearts. They were religious hypocrites. Because in one breath, oh, don't heal this man. That's not the spiritual thing to do. Wait till tomorrow. They didn't care about the law of God. They had murder in their hearts. They wanted Jesus dead. 
So Jesus says, you want to challenge me? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? But let me challenge you. Are, are you here to save a life? Or are you here to kill? What's your motive? We know murder was on their minds because we move from the conspiracy against Jesus continued. Verses 1 and 2. From the grain fields into the synagogue, the conspiracy against Jesus continued. Verses 1 and 2. To the conspiracy against Jesus confronted. Verses 3 through 5. A dramatic command, a dramatic cross-examination, a dramatic cure. The conspiracy against Jesus continued. The conspiracy against Jesus confronted. Now verse 6. The conspiracy against Jesus Collaborated. Verse 6 tells us the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. I think the Pharisees went out of the synagogue not only embarrassed but also frustrated. Luke 6.11 says they were fuming. It says they were filled with rage. Imagine that. Here was a man who was cured. No sympathy. Just like the the paralytic healed. No sympathy. They're filled not with love and compassion, but with rage and pride because they were roundly defeated publicly by Jesus. Spiritually speaking, because Jesus proved to outrank them spiritually because he had more compassion for this guy than they did. And he proved that he was actually honoring the law of God by doing good and healing. Spiritually, he outranked them. Theologically, he outranked them. He proved he was superior by exposing the inconsistency of their theology surrounding the Sabbath. He was spiritually superior and theologically superior and biblically superior. He had more knowledge of the Scriptures. He knew that a sacrificial life for others honored the law more than hundreds of ritualistic sacrifices on the altar. They were losing credibility with the people They were being humbled and threatened. And instead of loving him, they hated him. Instead of submitting to him, they determined to destroy him. And Mark says they collaborated with another group. They held counsel with the Herodians. So a plot is being hatched to kill Jesus. Matthew, in Matthew's account, says they conspired against him. Matthew calls it a conspiracy. The Herodians. Very unlikely group to collaborate with. But because Roman law prevented the Jews from doing their own executions, the Herodians could be helpful. The Herodians were basically a political group who supported Herod and the dynasty of his sons. By default, therefore, they were supporters of Rome. They were sort of the uh, politically correct people of the day, in cahoots with the government. The Pharisees were the conservatives and any other time they would have hated the Herodians, but on this day they would collaborate with them. They collaborated with those they saw as compromising with the Greco-Roman ways. They compromised and collaborated with those who actually hated the law of God instead of turning to Jesus who loved the law of God. So much irony. They were using this man in the synagogue as a pawn to discredit Jesus, and now they're going to use the Herodians in order to destroy Jesus. That's the language that is used, to destroy him. Both groups will work together. Now, in Matthew's account, Matthew 12, 15, it tells us Jesus was aware of this, and he withdrew from there. 
Jesus knew their hearts. Jesus knows all hearts. Jesus knew he was a threat to their authority. There can only be one king. And the question this morning is, is he your king? Is he your king? Are you going to run? As they say, you can run, but you can't hide. He's one king. One king over all. Someday every tongue will confess and every knee will bow to this king. There are many today that still oppose Jesus as king. There are the secularists who want to destroy Jesus and get rid of Christians. There are the liberals in the church who want to redefine who Jesus is and what He is about. Social justice. There are the legalists who take away His grace and mercy and substitute good works in its place. None of these groups recognize who King Jesus is. Did you hear me on that? None of them. None of them. Social justice is not about justice. All of these groups are guilty of virtue signaling, offering their own ways to heaven, their own kingdoms. The secularists, they want government to replace God so that you can have your best life now, or better yet, so those in power can have their best life. The liberals, they've been around for a long time, twisting Scripture, perverting Scripture. It used to be the social gospel, now it's the social justice gospel. A warped view of depravity, treating many groups as victims and other groups, really just one group, as villains. The true gospel is not in their system. If you hold to any sort of social justice ideology, I want to urge you with all my heart that you need to repent of that. There's no place of that in the church. And I would have fear even for your own soul. Because if you buy into that, that tells me that you view yourself as a victim and you don't recognize your own sin and your own depravity. You want to point out all the sins of everyone else. There's enough sin to go around. We're all depraved, right? There's no salvation in that. And the legalists, they have their own kingdom, their own way of salvation. Just obey the law of God. Obey our rules. No. There's one king. The Pharisees ran from this king. The man with the withered hand ran to him ran to him. Here's our Lord in this account offering eternal Sabbath rest. To rest from all other false systems. All other false religions. To turn to Christ. Salvation does not come apart from repentance. You have to repent not only of your sin. Listen to me. You need to repent of your self-righteousness. Don't resist him. Turn to him. Don't challenge Jesus. Embrace Him. Don't question Him. Answer His call to repent. And I promise you, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. For He is Lord of the Sabbath. Indeed, He is Lord of all. Bow to Him today. Repent of your sin. Turn to Him. Be forgiven. Quit fighting Him. He will save you. Let us pray. Lord, thank You for the truth that Your Word provides to us. The conviction, while at the same time the the hope of grace that is found in Christ. 
Father, it is our greatest desire that there would be no one here today that would leave in a rage like the Pharisees. Lord, we pray You would change their hearts to love Christ, to love the things of His Word, to see the ugliness of their own sin and to flee from that, to repent, to turn to Christ, to come clean with their sin, to leave it at the foot of the cross, to look to Christ for salvation. Lord, we know that's what the Gospel does. It either saves a life or it hardens a heart. Those are the only two responses. It's only Your sovereign work of regeneration that can make a hard heart soft. Lord, would You do that in our midst even today at this moment. There's someone here that doesn't know Christ. May they cry out to Him in their hearts for salvation. Give them the assurance of forgiveness as they look to Him and are assured by His Word. Father, we pray, those of us who are believers today, free us from legalism. Free us from the bitterness that it creates, the self-righteousness that it creates. May we repent of that. Lord, may we be transparent like our Lord, living in truth, loving the truth, honoring the truth, yielding to the Holy Spirit that the fruit of the Spirit might be produced in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you for your word. We ask your blessing on us as we sing our closing hymn. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.